0: Episode 4 of Sharing the Magic, a show dedicated to all things Disney. I'm Tara and I'd like you to join us as we explore this magical world. Whether you're a die-hard fan or a casual visitor, this podcast is for anyone who can use a little extra pixie dust. Tonight, we have an awesome guest who is a best-selling author and world-renowned Disney keynote speaker. But before we introduce our guest, let's introduce the rest of the cast. First up, she's practically perfect in every way. Annie. Hi, how are you guys? And then we have everyone's favorite Disney dad, Matt. How are you doing tonight?
1: I'm doing great. Really excited to talk to our guest.
0: Awesome. Same here. And finally, our host this week, the Goofy dupe himself, Jeff. How are you doing?
1: I'm I'm doing good.
2: So Jeff, I uh I I kind of do a, a goofy voice, and I love. I'm just a big fan of Goofy. So sometimes with with our most special guests, I like to do a little uh, goofy introduction. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do it for you, if you don't mind. Here it is. <clears> Orange, <throat> home today. We welcome Jeffrey Barnes. When well, he's wrote some books, and ain't no fiddle faddle either. These books about the wisdom of Walt and Disney, little doctors in the house. <laughs> so there you go, Jeff. <laughs> That's pretty darn good. Thank you, my friend. That's, I, yeah, we just interviewed Bill, Bill Farmer last week, and it was, he's just a sweetheart. Of he me. really is.
3: Yeah, I, I, I was yeah. about to say I I have met Bill Farmer on more than one occasion, and yeah, you're giving Bill a run for his money. Nice job. <laughs> well, th- thank you.
2: I I here I I, I gush so much when our interview. I'm I'm gonna have a hard time uh, editing it because he's just I call him Saint Bill because he's just he's just such a sweet guy.
3: He really is. Yeah,
2: cool. But but it's nice to have you and 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 we got two Jeffs in the house tonight, which is wonderful and. And
3: uh, yeah, how about Jeffs and everybody else is goofy. Yeah, that's good. Cool. Um,
2: All right, so so um, Jeff, I mean, here's here's kind of my first my first. I've been thinking a lot about. Okay, well, you know what what I've read your books. um, I I listened to your interviews. You have you have such a lot of like a lot of really great things to say, and I thought, okay, what would be the best way to like kind of inter introduce you and it so i had uh, for me i in my um, my undergrad studies i had i had a pr- i had a professor that used this phrase all the time and it was story shapes life and to me it just just hearing that phrase story shapes life had such an impact on me personally so when i read your books that's i i kind of maybe i just projected but you're so much about story you're so much about the the thinking about the narrative of your own life and so I kind of I kind of just want to ask you to talk about your own story and and what other stories kind of had an impact on on your story
3: well I mean if, if that's what you picked up if that's your one sentence takeaway wow <laughs> um, yeah you got it um, because for me um, you know I, I didn't start out a Disneyland fan Um but i've always been enamored with story my my mother was just this fantastic storyteller Um, and i um i have a phd and i did my doctoral dissertation not on disney but on narrative criticism in the new testament i.e storytelling and um you know as i as i write about in the book my first time at disneyland I, i i i hated it and It wasn't until I had an opportunity to go back and in between, you know, I've always been insatiably curious, which was one of Walt's principles for success. And that's when I discovered um, out of all of his successes, he most wanted to be remembered for what? For being a storyteller. You know, he, he loved Mickey, of course. He loved Snow White. He loved Disneyland. But at the end of the day, Walt most wanted to be remembered as a storyteller and that's why he built the parks. Um, he built the parks for the purpose of telling stories. And if you pay attention to what's actually going on, there's stories that then challenge us to go out and do what: live our own great story. And once I found that out, oh my gosh, um, it changed my entire experience with the park. And I suddenly realized I, I could leverage that to inspire and motivate people to change their stories, level up in their story, to take a story that they loved, which were the Disneyland stories, and use it as inspiration and, and, and motivation. And so that has become my life's passion and my life's mission.
2: What other stories? What stories uh, have sh- shaped your life? What other, beside even besides Disney, of course, Walt. But what? But when we think of your own, what you call a meta narrative, right? The meta narrative of your life. I know I was a New Testament guy too, so <laughs> it was you know like thinking about what do you call hermeneutics? It's like the interpretation of of the story, you right? Know? And we think of the bigger story, which is our lives and and your story. What other little stories have impacted your? bigger story?
3: Well, I think in in terms of the bigger narrative, it's this idea of not being born successful. I mean, who is, right? Um, It's having more failures than successes, which is true of almost any entrepreneurial success story that you hear about. Um, It's about resiliency and and having the courage to um, move your story, move your chapters forward no matter what. And I've I've always been drawn to that. I I have always um, you know found that to be incredibly appealing. Um, and, and I've loved I've I've always loved history. Um, I I've loved taking history classes. I've loved teaching history. Um, and you know when people said, "Oh, I hate history. History's boring." No, you've you just had boring history teachers who didn't know how to tell a freaking story, right? So um, you know, so for, for me, that's sort of the bigger arc of um, you know, g- give me give me a struggle, and 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 that's the story. And oh, by the way, um, a lot of people, especially when it is in the Disney narrative. They sort of assume that story equates to happily ever after ending. Nothing could be further from the truth. Story equals conflict. And um, we're wired for story. It's in our human nature. It's why we read books. It's why we go to the movies. It's what keeps us going back to the Disney parks over and over and over again. We love story. Um, But every great story requires conflict. Conflict. And most of us, we want nothing to do with conflict. We run away at adversity. We avoid obstacles. We try to take the easiest path. And as a result, we're we're bored with our lives. We're, we're trying to figure out, you know, why we're not in love with our own story. Well, it's because we're avoiding conflict, difficulty adversity obstacles and challenge at each and every turn
2: that's and that's well said it's like so i, I was listening to mel robbins mm-hmm. i think it was last week and she said she said something that really stuck with me she said and, and it ties into what you were just saying she said you know you, maybe your dreams aren't meant to be reached and she's she said that and i thought well that makes me uncomfortable i don't like to hear that but what she meant was Maybe your happily ever after wasn't in this, this happily ever after. Maybe the happily ever after is actually in the conflict of you reaching your dreams. And I thought that's very <laughs> profound. And it, so I, I I hear the same thing from you. I think that's just such an interesting, an interesting concept. Yeah, um, You know, a lot of people, they, they think they should escape their problems, you know, overcome their problems. You know, numb their problems, but uh, how many people actually embrace these their problems as a way of finding goodness in that moment?
3: Uh, Speaking of Robbins, um, Tony Robbins says, "Your biggest problem is you think you shouldn't have any." (laughs) I love that; it's true. So, yeah, and I mean, you look at Walt: um, impoverished childhood, difficult relationship with his father. um, You know, the Disney Company and rightfully so is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year, not nearly enough is being said and and talked about and celebrated with regards to the 100th anniversary of the bankruptcy and the financial failure of Laffer Graham studio in 1923. Yeah, it's 100 years of success, but it's 100 years of success following failure, bankruptcy, starting over with $40, a single suitcase on a one-way ticket, leaving Kansas City and coming out to California. That's the story because that's the conflict. That's right. That's right. And and then losing Oswald, nobody believing in Snow White, and even with the success of Mickey Mouse and Snow White and everything that followed, at age 53, nobody believing in his dream for Disneyland to include his own wife and his <laughs> own brother. And Walt just freaking didn't care
2: i want to talk so much more about that <laughs> i really do i'm gonna put a pin in that but i, I want to go to matt so matt, matt all right here we go
3: yeah yeah
1: so i want to just go back real quick to something you had mentioned earlier because i found it really interesting how you know you're dr disneyland and you talked about how the first time you went to disneyland you you hated it uh personally i've never been to disneyland i apologize doctor I, i'm gonna try to remedy that my wife and children want to go um so but we've been to disney world numerous times And I was just wondering, like, I'm assuming you have gone, I know you've gone to Walt Disney World. What was your impression going to Disney World, especially being Dr. Disneyland? Like, how did you compare it? What was that experience like? So
3: that's just it. I had been to a Disney park when I was 10 years old in 1974, and I loved that. And, um... I I was sort of probably expecting that when I got to California in August of 1988. Um, And I was, I I was both underwhelmed and overwhelmed, Um, underwhelmed by the small footprint, the, um, you know, 77 foot castle, uh, the way in which you could see the Matterhorn from the freeway. Um, But I think, Most significantly, I I had no idea what I was doing. So I stumble in on a on a Sunday in August at like 11 o'clock in the morning. And I'd been in California since 1986. And the television had just been bombarded with commercial after commercial after commercial about the newest, latest, greatest Disneyland attraction, which was Star Tours. So that was the first thing we wanted to do. And I I knew that it was in Tomorrowland, and I'd been to Magic Kingdom enough in Florida to know where Tomorrowland was. And so we marched right down Main Street. We turned right into Tomorrowland, and I asked a cast member, hey, where's the new Star Wars, Star Tours? And she goes, well, you're in the right place for the ride, wrong place for the line. We then got redirected back to the end of Main Street. And it was more than three hours before we experienced our first Disneyland attraction. Now, one thing you need to understand about me, um, I've never once lost my patience. You can't lose what you don't have. I I, I don't do lines. um, And and, and so standing in line for for three hours um, just felt disaster for me. And so now by the time we get out of there, it's past two o'clock in the afternoon. The park's even more crowded. It's hot because it's August. It was just for me an absolutely miserable experience. And if you had told me at the end of that day that I'd be doing now what I'm I, I would have said you're absolutely nuts. Again, that's that's part of the conflict. Right. I tell people all the time, if I had gotten on Star Tours in five minutes, none of this happens. None of it. But again, it became sort of an obsession. I I went down the Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole, if you will, because I stayed in California and I had to figure, why why does everyone else love this place? And the locals in California, it's a different love affair than, than what you have in Florida. It's just a different beast. And I'm like, okay, what did I miss? And I had I had to figure it out. And that's when I did the research on Walt and fell in love with Walt, fell in love with his story, learned about all of the difficulties and the adversity. And again, if I just get on Star Tours in five minutes and love the place right out of the gate, then again, none of none of this happens. Wow. Wow. So it's actually, you know, for the rest of us
1: and for you, right? That, that turned out to be the uh, the a positive that you had to wait in that
3: line. <laughs> well, again, if you, if you view life through the lens of a story, you're going to discover that more often than not, life is happening for you, right. yeah. not against you. Right. That's that's good. Yeah. That's well said. Yeah. And
1: Jeff, I'm the same exact way when it comes to lines. I am – you know, I know the, the genie plus is the hot debate right now. I am more than fine paying the extra money to skip the line if I can because that – and I, I've never been to Disneyland, but that heat down in Orlando and the humidity – because I mean I am a history teacher, so I loved all the things you said about history teacher. Um, but that heat down there, I can only go in, in July and August, and it's,
3: it's brutal. Yeah. No, I mean uh, – You know we're we're at uh, Disneyland at least once a week, sometimes twice a week, like we were this past week. Um, And we get out to World probably about once a quarter. Um, And and we're going to be out there um, 31st of May to June 5th, which is pushing the envelope in terms of my uh, summer heat and humidity (laughs) right (laughs) now. Yeah. I I grew up in the panhandle of Florida and there's a reason why I live in California (laughs) (laughs) and the number one no offense to Disneyland. The number one reason is it Walt's original park. The number one reason for me is the weather. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people say that.
2: Oh, it's it's true. Very nice. Yeah. We, we went to Disneyland for my, for my, for my, for my my honeymoon. Sorry, Hannah. If you hear this, Um, but the weather was beautiful. It was August and it was, it was a dry heat, not, not humid. Oh, just the weather was so
3: Jeff, I agree with you when, when it comes. And and No one's ever said I went to Walt Disney world in August and the weather was glorious. (laughs) no, no.
2: No. You go there for the love, you know, you're like, I'm going to have to endure. I know it's going to be sweltering and humid, but, dang it, I love me some Walt, I love me some Mickey, and so, and whatever ride, so you just kind of endure My it. favorite
4: is when you tell people you're going in August, and they look at you like all bug-eyed, like, are you crazy? Yeah. You're yeah, like, like listen, <laughs> <laughs> Papa Watt's yeah. calling.
3: <laughs> and I have so many friends and, you know, great fans that I've met over the years who are in Orlando, and every time I'm there, they're like, when are you going to move, when are you going to move, when are you going to move? And, and I... I appreciate the sentiment. I do. Um, I, I, I can't do it. Yeah. I, I just can't. <laughs> and, and I, and I, and and like, I remember um, Sam Genoway who wrote uh, the Disneyland story and a great book on the Epcot project. I'm like, you know, you know, Walt acclimated to, to, to Los Angeles and Southern California. And I'm like, what was he thinking in terms of weather when, he planned on putting it in central Florida and he was like, look at the original plans for Epcot. It was domed for a reason. <laughs> I'm still waiting for the Disney dome. Jeff.
2: <laughs> I'm still waiting for my apartment. Cause that's, that's what it was supposed to be. Right. Epcot was supposed to be like a, city. a like a housing yeah. a, a city, right?
3: Oh, oh no, it was a, it was going to be a real city, yeah. um, progress city. And you were going to live there. You were going to work there. You were going to play there. Well, that just sounds awesome.
4: <laughs> that been- they're starting some of those communities, right? Like similar, but not really.
3: Yeah. I mean, in 96, I think it was, um, they opened Celebration, which was kind of the realization of what walled originally, but it's not. It's not. Um, There's, not. It's, There's really not much
4: going on. <laughs> yeah.
3: Um, I mean, it's, it's a housing development that doesn't, that Disney controlled, but it's it, like it, it never had the corporate research and the integrated transport. Like it, it wasn't Epcot. Jeff, what do you think Disney would think of today's Epcot? That is a phenomenal question. And the first thing I would tell you, and I, I've been privileged to do multiple interviews with legends and Imagineers who worked with Walt on a daily basis. And They will tell you to a person they never knew on any given day what Walt was thinking or what he was going to do next. So anybody who says that, you know, Walt would roll over in his grave. Well, Walt was cremated. So there's no rolling over in his grave regardless. (laughs) Um, But frozen
1: under the castle.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Don't even know that. Um, uh, They just have, they don't know what they're talking about because the people who knew him really well, worked with him and still won't even talk about the day that he died because 55 some years later, they're they're still moved by that loss will say, um, yeah, I have no idea. So for us to speculate, um, I I don't think is is fair at all. Now, having said that, knowing that um, everyone thought that the original park, Disneyland would be bankrupt, shuttered, and forgotten in six months or less. The fact that the sun never sits on a Disney park anywhere in the world today, I, I think would please him to no end. The fact that, um, you know, when Hurricane Ian went through last fall and they had to shut down for a couple of days, the, the company lost $80 million a day, I, I, I think would, would just blow Walt away. Um, I, I think he would love – I think Epcot is the most unique thing that that Disney's ever done from a theme park perspective. If for no other reason, it, it's, it's almost impossible to explain. And, and, and what I mean by that is if you've been to Disneyland or Magic Kingdom, you can explain each other to a Disney fan. You, you know what a Magic Kingdom is. You know what a Disneyland is. If you've been to a zoo or a safari park, you know what an animal kingdom is. If you've been to a Universal Studios, then you kind of get Hollywood Studios and to some degree, California Adventure. What the heck is an Epcot, right? (laughs) And the manner in which it is really Tomorrowland on steroids and a permanent World's Fair is super, super, super unique. Now, would Walt be disappointed in the fact that his vision for Epcot wasn't ever tried, let alone realized? Yes, he would be disappointed in that. But that doesn't mean he wouldn't love what they actually did. Maybe he wouldn't have wanted them to call it Epcot, but you know, I, I still think he would love what they what they came up with. The one thing that I that I do. Um, get upset about is um, I don't think and again this is pure speculation on my part I don't think there's any way that Walt builds the bus system that exists at Walt Disney World (laughs) Um, that, that was a total Eisner thing having grown up in the city and wanting to live in the suburbs and Walt Walt would have run that monorail all over the 27,440 acres and he wouldn't have cared what it cost. And it, it upsets me so much that I, abs- I I won't ride a bus at Walt Disney World. like, like it's, it's, it's my personal boycott <laughs> and- you know, I love
2: that.
3: My taking a stand in, in honor of what I think Walt truly wanted. Now I, I absolutely love the Skyliner, and if they end up running the Skyliner to everywhere, which I hope they do, then then I'll, I'll say fine. You know, give me the Skyliner and or the monorail everywhere, but I won't ride one of the buses. I, I think the buses violate what Walt wanted in Epcot more than anything else that they've done there.
2: What did Walt? What so? What did Walt
3: want? He wanted monorails and people movers. I like it. <laughs> I would he he wanted, yeah. Um, he he wanted um, mass transportation that didn't require, um, you know, traffic and roadways.
4: Imagine the people move to work. <laughs> That'd be awesome.
3: Now, do you think that that
1: Walt ever imagined Walt Disney World being so expansive? for parks, water parks the shopping district spread out so far that that may have changed, or you think he would literally run that monorail
3: everywhere, even at this point, like how big it got? Um, I, I, I think he, I mean, how much did he think would happen there? I don't know. Other than to say it, the, the very last film he ever made was the Epcot film. Um, and he says, Right. And and it's so interesting because, you know, a lot of diehard Disney fans give the company a lot of grief for not ever really giving Epcot a go. And to some degree, Walt gets a pass for passing away because he gives us this great dream and this great vision. And then he isn't really accountable for it because he dies and he almost becomes an, an Epcot martyr, if you will. But yet, if you pay attention to the film, he says all of this is subject to change.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Right. I, I feel like he did that with everything, right? He was always he was, we're moving forward, we're open to change. You know, I don't think he was Correct. ever the kind of guy that was like, "This is how it's going to be, and you have to do it." He, he liked progress, right? So exactly.
2: Like- I, you know, I, you hear this sometimes, like right brain, left brain. I, I don't know how much truth is in that, but I almost feel like Walt was, and this is just Jeff. You're the expert. But I almost feel like Walt was this right brain thinker. He was an artist. You know, I growing up, I that's all I did is I drew, drew, drew. I just drawing all the time. But it kind of it changed my brain in a way where you see life in kind of a a big different way. You don't see it binary, ones and zeros. You see it in in abstraction and tension and 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 you see life in this kind of way that, you know, people like me that is more right brain. I'm, com- oh, yeah, I'm very flexible. Yeah, it looks like this now, but who knows? You know, in a year from now, it might look different. But then I-, I think it's interesting. It seemed like, so I have a small business and I'm, you know what I'm so bad at? Bookkeeping. You know what I'm so bad at? <laughs> Numbers. <laughs> so I have to have people in my own life that I bring in. And it, so you have to have Roy. That's it. That's, that was exactly the point I was getting to. And so I, 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 I would love to hear you talk about that, that kind of, that tension between Roy and Walt and Walt was kind of this visionary and Roy was a, a, he was kind of the the grounding presence. And so I I thought, I just think that's fascinating.
3: Yeah. So I I love the visionaries. I think it's the most important piece in leadership. Um, You know that you're a leader if and only if, and when you have followers Um, and it's, it's not about management. It's not about maintaining the status quo. It's about where are we, where are we going? It's about, you know, casting a vision and saying, this is the future. Let's go. Right. 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 Walt was phenomenal at that. Um, But at the same time, Walt didn't wait around for the future to catch up to whatever he was thinking. He knew and and he, he said this, the best way to get something done is to stop talking and start doing. And, and so he had these great ideas. He had these great dreams. He, he was this incredible visionary and this uh, amazing creative talent. But for a lot of creatives, we just sit around and dream 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 and dream. And dream, and dream. We never get up off the darn park bench and do anything That's with right. it. Um, Walt was a dreamer and a doer, and he wasn't afraid to make changes and course correct along the way right and, and so one of the things that i'm obsessed about is okay you've got an idea that's that's great right but you only change maybe not the world but your world by getting up off your park bench and taking action and then secondly the the difference between laffer studio which went bankrupt after only 18 months A hundred years ago, 1923, 2023. The difference between the first studio and the Disney Brothers studio that, again, this year is a hundred years old. The difference between the two was not Walt. The difference was Roy. Yeah. Yeah. And if it were up to Walt, he would have driven the second studio right off the physical cliff all over again. So... You, you, you got to have your Roy,
2: yeah. I almost, I almost feel like you know. You look at you know, look at uh, Steve Jobs and Wozniak, right? You look at you see this pattern a lot where you have oh, a yeah. big visionary, but then they always team up with you know somebody that is more boots to ground that has that more you know pattern. Eisner and Wells, yeah, exactly. And I think yep. you know, I think there's, I think there's a way that we should celebrate both, both, both. Personality types, and I and I think maybe, like, correct me if I am wrong, but i I'd love to to hear what you think about this. You know if you're a if you're a dreamer, well, and you're what you just said, get off that park bench. You've got so maybe that person that man, I got these, I got this vision, I have these dreams. Well, what is it going to take for you to pull up your bootstraps and get those those dreams in real life? You know, moving. But if you're somebody who's very boots to ground and you're not very creative. Well, maybe you should go take an art class, <laughs> you know, something, something like that
3: to, to expand well, your vision. Yeah, two things about that. First of all, if, if Walt doesn't get on that train and come to California, Roy spends the rest of his life selling vacuum cleaners door-to-door in Los Angeles. Did you imagine? I mean, that's just the truth of it. Yeah, for sure. But then secondly, when Walt dies on December 15th of 1966 – Roy comes out of retirement and does three things. First of all, he makes a commitment to see his brother's final vision and final wish through to fruition, which, of course, is Disney World. But then he announces, you know, it's not Project X. It's not the Florida Project. It's not Disney World. We're going to honor my brother and name it Walt Disney World. But then the third thing he does, and I, and I think this is absolutely amazing. He's been to Imagineering in Glendale, which is three miles from the studio in Burbank. If you ever come out to Southern California, I've not already done this. Make sure you build in time to go to the studio, go to the park bench at Griffith Park and the merry-go-round where he first dreamed of a place where parents and children could have fun together. The uh, You know, place where the the they built the, the two kit houses next to each other in the La Folies neighborhood like all of this stuff is like within a five square mile pocket of each other it's insane how close it is even though the studio was in Burbank and Imagineering was in Glendale it was like a five minute drive between each other Roy's been to Imagineering all of one time that's it and, and now he's got to run both ends of the company and see Walt Disney World from, you know, 27,440 acres of worthless swampland in central Florida to the opening of phase one. And to his credit, he gets it done. He gets it done debt free and they open it. October 1st of 71, they dedicated October 25th of 71. Cause they learned their lesson to do three weeks of soft opening versus black Sunday,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. soft and then good. while his
3: family is on a trip to Disneyland in December of the same year, just two months later, Roy dies and his, and his son will say they were the best five years of my father's life. Wow. Because you know, you know what he spent the last five years doing? taking the art class. Really? There you go. Cuz he cuz he cuz he spent them with the, with the Imagineers. Nice. That's yeah. And he and he loved it. He absolutely loved it. That wow. Yeah, he's cursing he's cursing Walt the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely loved it. That's Wow, that's beautiful.
4: Because honestly, it's way more fun to be the creative person, you know. It's way more fun to be the yes guy and not be the, the no guy and the um, watch the bottom line guy, you know. Well, and that's just
3: like th- they fought like cats and dogs. And when Walt said to Roy, we're gonna build an amusement park, Roy looked at him and said, Walt, you have had some crazy ideas in your day. We are not building an amusement park and and he called the banks and said if my brother comes down there and talks to you about that <laughs> damn amusement park again i need to know about it i didn't and, know it was
2: that intense i didn't i knew yeah. they, but wow i didn't know that
3: and and this and the studio and the stockholders sued walt over it that's that's how we end up with wed okay wow Like, like, like WED is created to protect the studio from going bankrupt when Disneyland inevitably fails. And Walt wants to use his own name and they're like, no, your name's attached to the studio. Nice try. And so he ends up having to use his initials because his name's already in play with the studio and, and Walt is just, he's furious. Right. And, and it, he just feels as though Roy is, you know, stopping him at every turn. But the first person to spend the first $1 to purchase the first ticket on Monday, July 18th, the day that you, you know, first had to spend money because July 17th was for press, media, celebrities, and VIPs, the first person to actually spend money to get into Disneyland That first ticket was bought by Roy. Wow. That's
2: he he came around. Yeah. And and I guess that was I guess I always wondered, you know, I knew there was conflict. I knew there was tension between Walt and Roy. But, you know, for me, I never really knew how much it was or how much I bet it seems like it was very tumultuous, but also Seemed like it was very emotional as well. There was a lot of, Uh, they
3: would go, they'd go months without speaking to each other. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And even, and even with the Florida project, I don't, they managed to get 10,000, 12,000 acres. I don't remember what the total was. And then Walt walks in super excited because he's got an option to pick up another, I don't know, 10,000 more. And Roy looks at him and goes, how much more land do you need, Walt? <laughs> and Walt says, Roy, what would you do right now for an extra 10,000 acres in Anaheim? And Roy's like, ah, oh, damn. And he writes.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, they say the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. And I think when I, when I hear their story, it's like, well, they didn't, they weren't indifferent towards, they may have fought like cats and dogs, but that doesn't mean that there was hate there. There was a lot of, you know, there, there may have been a lot of fighting, but you know, if it was indifferent and they're like Roy or they could have just been, let's go our separate ways. Instead, you know, they, yeah, they may have not have talked for a month, but they fought like cats and dogs. And to me that that's, that makes their, their story interesting but it also makes it kind of a loving story, in my opinion.
3: Well, and the, ni- the night before R- Walt died, um, Roy was there in the hospital room. And the hospital is right across from the studio. That's the other thing. Like, it's just insane. Like, you, you see the studio and then you see St. Joseph's Hospital. And you real like, Walt could see who was working and who wasn't from his hospital room based on the lights that were on. It's just crazy how close all this stuff is. But Roy's in the hospital room and Walt's laying on what the next morning will be his deathbed. And he's looking up at the ceiling and laying out the land in Orlando and telling him, here's where the Magic Kingdom needs to go, here's where Epcot needs to go, here's where you need to run the monorail. And the next day, Walt's dead. And Roy is at the end of the bed, rubbing Walt's feet, because Walt always complained about his feet being called. And Roy is in tears saying, I can't protect you anymore. He was his eight-year older brother and had spent his entire life protecting him. And and he knew that those those days were over. And then <laughs> the, the the pencil pushers, who were all Roy's people, wanted To put Magic Kingdom, which, again, was phase one, because Epcot was always going to be paid for by Magic Kingdom or Disneyland 2.0. They wanted to put Magic Kingdom close to I-4 because think about the amount of money spent on the infrastructure needed to go that far inland off of the main road. And Roy's like, no, and hell no. We're going to do it the way my brother laid it out. And so, and so, like, think about where Epcot is. Think about where Hollywood Studios. Think about where Animal Kingdom is in relation to I four versus Magic Kingdom. And all of that was decided the night before Walt died.
2: Wow, wow! What loyalty I feel like, and Annie, I'm going to get. I know Annie, you've been quiet, so okay. But I, I just, I find this story so fascinating. And I think about loyalty. I think about. You know, you hear you tur- you turn on the news all the time. You when it comes to business, it's just so cold, cognitive. It's it's out. People are just out for blood. You don't hear to me. You just don't hear those kind of stories about when I when I hear that story, I think loyalty. You know, and and I don't know. Well, I like, think
4: you know. Roy would have known that what would have haunted him like <laughs> no one's business <laughs> if he yeah, put yeah, that near imagine. i4 because his whole reason for buying up that much land was so he could remove people from reality and so that people couldn't see the freeway from the top of you know mount everest with matterhorn or whatever like that was his whole right. thing with with um florida that's the reason why the parking lot is a mile away from the park like <laughs> there's a whole reason for Walt's madness and I think he literally would have haunted him. Like I can't even tell you. <laughs> I mean had he given into that.
3: <laughs> this is the man who on a tour with Billy Graham. Billy Graham stops Walt in the middle of Disneyland and says, Walt, I gotta hand it to you. This is an amazing fantasy that you've managed to create. And Walt is indignant. He's outraged and says, Billy, you don't get it. This, this is reality. Everything out there, that's the fantasy. So, you know, like, so, like, yeah, Roy probably didn't want to mess with Walt in the afterlife.
4: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like,
2: like, ooh, Walt would have haunted the crap out of him. <laughs> well, but, but Walt sort of had, and Annie, you know, well, Annie, Annie, may, you could, Annie, you could pick this up if you want. If not, just have something else. But I, I just feel like maybe Walt was in tune to something, you know, like, and Jeff, you talk about that in a lot of your books, this kind of this, this surrendering to this, this feeling of this, this bigger part of your, your purpose and your, you know, and I, and yeah, I'll just stop there. Yeah.
3: Um, yeah, you, you have to live for something bigger and beyond yourself. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we see that with Walt, um, you know, I mean, even he didn't really care about money. Um, you know, he, he only wanted and needed money to pursue the ideas and the whole purpose of the ideas, you know, he genuinely just wanted to create a place and make movies and tell stories that, you know, made people happy. And at the end of the day, and I talk about this in my keynotes. Um, you know if you've got an idea, if you've got a goal, if you've got a dream, do it because it's gonna matter not just to you but to a lot of other people as well
2: right And I'll stop you like I think I think that's absolutely true about Walt but it's also true about you. <laughs> I've read your book and I your your own life. And your own drive to your own purpose in the way that you've lived your life, I think is is to me when I when I read it, it was just as just as impactful. My you know, favorite
4: li- was when you put off your
2: your surgery.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Man had brain cancer, brain about. tumor. They said you need to get the surgery on this date, and he said, "No, nah, I got a Disneyland cast to do." So it's not just <laughs> Walt. Like- we got someone in the room
2: that. Very well as lives this life the same way. And I think
4: too, in your book, you're like, everyone thought I was crazy. Everyone was like, <laughs> what are you doing? And that was such a Walt move. <laughs> that was like a, what would Walt do? That was the moment.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. And I tell that story in, in my keynotes and the, the point of it is I had this idea of teaching this class to inspire and motivate students to go for their goals Pursue their dreams and to recognize there's always going to be adversity. You're always going to have to overcome obstacles, embrace conflict. And I wanted to use something that I knew they loved, which in Southern California is Disneyland. And I, I, I wanted to use the class to tell that story, to inspire and motivate students to, to go out and live a, 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 a better story. And. I, I, I give the first lecture and, yeah, I, it was great, but the students were like, whoa, like, boy, did we sign up for the right class. Right. Um, and then the next day I'm diagnosed with this life threatening brain tumor. They want to operate immediately. They tell me I've got the weekend to get my affairs in order. They want me back on Tuesday for the surgery. Um, you know, it's it's a it's an eight week recovery period. And I'm like, not going to happen because now the way I saw it was this isn't an opportunity to teach the class. It's an opportunity to live the class because it was never about the amusement park. It was always about embracing conflict and doing hard things, overcoming obstacles and, you know, leaning in to, you know, doing what it takes to see your dreams come true. And uh, yeah, how could I, how could I talk about that and then not do it? Right. (laughs) right. We just had the pleasure of
1: talking with, uh, with Lee Cockrell the other night and he was talking about leadership and that the same thing you're bringing up this, like the requirement almost to do what's hard, right? To do what's hard, not just say what's hard or say, this is what you should do, but to actually do it. And that that's you right you did that you lived it that's 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 amazing to like hear that type of story and yeah like andy said that's a walt move right there
4: that's, like what would have been like i'm movie. sorry yeah i'm on my deathbed but i'm gonna fly out disneyland or walt, walt disney world on my like, you know like <laughs> it's it's gonna be to be like and i like too you mentioned your work like you know, this was my one shot to do this class. If I stopped now, like they were not gonna let me do it again. Like it was, this was this is when I had my moment yeah. to do
3: this. So sorry. No, I pitched my Mickey Mouse idea. Who yeah, says right. I get another pitch? Right. <laughs> it's so
4: true. I was like, that absolutely insane. Another thing you mentioned in your book a lot is the Walter ego and how Mickey was. I love that so much, but you challenge everyone to say what their Walter ego would be. So my question is, out of all of the characters in the realm of Disney, who would be your Walter ego? Dumbo. Dumbo. Not even a, wow.
3: not even a
4: hesitation. I, <laughs> not even a hesitation,
1: why? I
3: gotta go, why? Um, <laughs> I've just always felt like, and have rooted for the the underdog, And there's that sense of abandonment there at the start of the movie, which I can identify with. I don't, we, I just, I can, um, my ears are ginormous. So (laughs) there's a sense of identity there. And then I think there's also this, you know, I believe people are far more capable than they realize. And there's, there's a lot of magic feathers out there that, we don't necessarily need, but we need. So I ended up, um, working with a writing coach after the, the, the brain tumor and brain surgery. I live by the way. Thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that, Jeff. I was,
2: I we're so insensitive around.
3: Yeah, here. I know the, the tension was, was really suspenseful. I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, oh, sorry about oh, you're a
4: ghost
2: or sound,
4: like they,
3: you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Walt says hi, by the way. Um, (laughs) You know, even longer than the class idea, I had been wanting to write a book about Disneyland after my second trip. You know, I had that first experience. It was awful. I go back three years later and I'm all in on Walt. I'm all in on, you know, the story. And I I came back and I I can vividly remember saying in June of 1991, I'm going to I'm going to write a book on Disneyland one day. Now, I had no idea exactly what that meant. Of course, I had no clue how. Um, and um, it you know just became this thing for the next 20, 25 years. And if I'm 100% honest, um, because I'd been teaching for so long, I knew how to teach classes way easier than I knew how to write a book. So to some degree, teaching the class was a way of – doing it but not doing it if that makes sense. It does.
2: That makes absolute sense to me. It really You know. Does.
3: Yeah. So now on the other so so when I went back to work, I am I'm, I'm haunted by this. Okay. Um it's great that we're healthy again, it's great that we're going back to work, it's great that I got to teach the class, the one regret would have been I I've had this book idea since 1991 and we've we we've, we've never done anything with it and so i'm like okay either get serious about it or just let it go but you know quit tormenting yourself because it's just it's just not worth it and so i decided to get serious about it and worked with a writing coach um and, and i'll be 100 percent honest with you i needed the writing coach about as much as dumbo needed his magic feather <laughs> I, I i i already knew what to do, I already had the ability, but I but I would have never done it without the writing code.
1: For sure. For, Goodness, for sure. That little
3: push. You needed that little push. Exactly. And I started on, and again, this had been a stop, start, stop, start, stop, start, have no clue. I can't do it. What was me thing for 20, 25 years. I started on November 22nd and sent it to the editor on April 15th. That's how long it took.
2: <laughs> how good did it feel when you finally
3: got it out? Out of oh my God. Um, I can remember hitting send immediately leaving the house and taking a walk. And this is going to sound dark and I don't mean for it to be, but the, I, I can remember having this incredible sense of freedom. I could get hit by a bus right yeah. now <laughs> and it doesn't effing matter because I wrote the damn thing. Like, like it was out of my hands. It could get published now. I'm done. Now right. I don't wish writing a book on my worst enemy And the truth of the matter is it wasn't like there's a lot more work left to be done after you hit send to the editor. I didn't know that yet. My first rodeo. Um, But, you know, if something horrific had happened like that work could have been done by someone else.
2: Yeah. But I bet you I bet you felt proud in the sense that. You had this thing, this tension, the, the creative muse inside of you. That's just there's this tension and getting it out into the world. It probably felt both like freeing, but also like proud in the sense that you're congruent with yourself. You know, yeah. you 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 knew this is something I have to do. But I, I call this a divine imperative. It's like yeah. I've got to do this thing. And if I don't, I might as well. What? Why am I even here on this earth? But once yeah. you get it out, there's a sense of
3: like I, – I can, I can remember feeling incredibly free. Um, there, were, there were two – more like I, I, I would just write and write and write and write and write. And I didn't care where in the book I wrote. So the first chapter was actually the, the last chapter finished. The first chapter completed was the last chapter I actually started working on, oddly enough. Um, and there were a couple of moments, like I remember working on, um, it's kind of the, the prologue and I ended it with, it was sort of like how to read this book. And I talked about, um, the importance of listening to the park. And I ended that with Mickey Mouse ears, not required. And when I said I was like, I'm going to be able to do this. And I, I remember waking up in the middle of the night because I was working on the passion or not, not I was working on the Mickey Mouse chapter and and the whole alter ego deal. Yeah. And I woke up in the middle of the night with I mean, I'll use your term divine imperative. Yeah. And realized that I could take alter ego and make it Walter ego. Ooh, I like that. I
2: love that And.
3: Phrase, Yeah. And and that's and and, and that's one of those things where like 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 when it's time to clean your kitchen, like you like you know what you need to do, right? Right. Like there's no sitting down knowing what you need to do to come up with that. Right. (laughs) That's right. And so what I tell people is like you wait to be inspired and motivated, you wait for the muse to show up in order to write, it's the other way around. You have to show up, you have to write, you have to do the work. And when you show that you are faithful to the process, then the muse arrives, then you get motivated, then you get inspired. So I was probably 20 to 25,000 words in what would be about a 65,000 word book before anything good actually started to happen. And, you know, and I and I, I I heard this somewhere and I repeat it all the time. Everybody wants to be an author. Almost nobody wants to be a writer. Uh, <laughs> that's really good.
2: Have you ever read um, Stephen Pressfield? I'm sure you yes. have. Yeah. The, the, the art, not the Art of War, but the War of Art. I'm getting that vibe and I, that's something that book has been as well as yours. I get that vibe. what I, I was just talking to everyone beforehand. I said, you know, what I love about Jeff's books is what I love is you don't differentiate yourself. as You know, you draw in all these different people, all these different thoughts and, and, and you're, you you do not oppose yourself to them because, you know, sometimes when it comes to Disney books, it's like, There's this kind of way of saying, okay, I don't. We don't talk about those other Disney books. You don't care. You're just like anybody and everybody's thoughts that are wonderful, and you bring them all in. And it's so, you know, what what I think. I just plug, just plug your book. It's just it's so wonderful in the fact that there's. There's a lot of wisdom here, and it's not just Walt, but the wisdom I think in in this book is is Jeff's wisdom too, which I think is pretty well, good.
3: <laughs> well, it's like when we go to Walt Disney World on May 31st and June 1st, we're then going to spend the second and third at Universal, right? Yeah, and then we're going to go back to Walt Disney. I, I I don't understand the either or no. mentality. No. <laughs> give not, me both. And. That's not. Yep, yeah,
1: both and is how.
3: Yes. Yes. So you have
1: to talk to my <laughs> wife a little bit because she won't let
3: us go to Universal.
2: <laughs> <laughs> hey, 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 Jeff. So Tara's got a question. Do you mind if she asks? Would that be okay?
3: Let's, let's go.
0: Let's do it. Awesome. Right, yeah. So I know we're going to get to fan questions at, right after, but I just wanted to know, um, what do you think is the single most important lesson we can learn from Walt's story?
3: Never give up, i.e. keep moving forward. And I'm going to sum that up um, in a quote from Lily. Lily said, I never saw Walt beaten at anything ever. Can you expand on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, this is an individual who again had a very impoverished childhood, extremely difficult relationship with his father. Um, When, when they lost the farm in Marceline, it, it broke that little boy's heart. He um, contracted the Spanish flu, the last global pandemic before the, you know, coronavirus that we went through uh, three years ago. Desperately wanted to go and fight in World War I and was not old enough, had to get his mother to assist him in um, forging his birth certificate so that he could at least be an ambulance driver is bankrupt with his first entrepreneurial endeavor in just 18 months, loses his first successful cartoon character, which despite what Walt says, never forget it all started with a mouse. No, Walt, it didn't start with a mouse. It started with a lucky rabbit or a not so lucky rabbit, Oswald. That's right. And then in the middle of the great depression, the only person in the country er or, Almost the only person in the country who's making any money is Walt Disney. And he doesn't want to, you know, he hated repeating himself. He hated sequels. Um, He said, you can't top pigs with pigs. And that was following the success of The Three Little Pigs. And he wanted to get into full length animated feature films. And nobody believed he should be doing that to include Roy. Roy sent an anonymous note saying, stick to shorts, Walt. Walt. I mean, short cartoons, he takes the money from the success of Snow White, does two things, builds a studio in Burbank, buys his parents a brand new home in North Hollywood. Well, the home in North Hollywood has a gas leak, kills his mother and nearly kills his father. As soon as the studio opens up, his animators go on strike and as soon as they come back, the studio is taken over the day after the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. And then he agrees to um, do war films, war training films and war bond films for cost over the next four years. And he comes out of World War Two um, in really dire financial straits. And in the middle of all of that, he wants to build not an amusement park, but a park that tells stories I mean, He just, he just never stopped and it, it didn't care what the odds were that were against him. And so you have got to believe in yourself, your ideas, your crazy thoughts. You've got to believe in your dreams and just keep moving forward. And, and, and the example that I'll give of that is is Main Street USA. Main Street USA is a replication of Walt's love for Marceline. Um, You know, we hear the word vulnerable a lot these days. Well, what it means to be vulnerable literally means to lean into the wound. Well, Walt's greatest childhood wound was having to leave Marceline when the farm failed. He leans into that childhood wound by recreating Marceline vis-a-vis Main Street USA. And yet at the same time, he has a foot in the past. He, he honors that tradition. You know, he, he recognizes the importance of, you know, turn of the century. And, you know, the era of the gas lamp, the electric lamp, the horse and buggy and the, you know, motor vehicle. But he can't wait to move forward into the future by way of Tomorrowland first turn on the right. So, so, again, um, you know, the, the sooner you believe in a better story moving forward, the, 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 the quicker you're going to leave your past behind.
2: But you can't. I love that. Oh Man, there's such a because if you're too for if you're too much in the future, you forget your own past. You, you lose yourself. If you're too much in the past, you well, you're just ruminating. And that's dangerous too. But Walt seemed to be at that place where that touch point between the two. And that seems, that's profound. To me, that's profound. It just hit me like, wow. Because if you're, you could fall off a horse one of on either side. But it seemed like Walt, you know, even though he was so forward thinking, we never think of Walt in the sense that his forward thinkingness. We'd love to talk about that, but we don't really talk so much about the fact that what you just said that there were these roots in his past. And the reason why he was forward thinking was because of, in light of something, something else. And I just, I, I just think that's profound. I thought that was, well,
3: and you, you know, he like, he's obviously rooted in history and a love of tradition because that's, wh- that's where we get frontier land. That's where we get great moments with Mr. Lincoln, but also his memories, his own memories. Right. And, and I think a lot of times, you know, we have this idea of, oh, well, the past, you know, didn't happen. And, you no, no, like it is part of our story, but it's not a story that you have to hold on to, to the point where it's the only story you tell moving forward into the future.
2: And I think that's where I, I, I think that that's exactly what I think is, is that snapshot of Walt, where he embodied that, where. You know, he wasn't tied down to the past, but it was it was a healthy motivator for him to move forward. Yeah. If I'm
3: right. Yeah. And I think another example of that is the way in which he was constantly embracing technology. I mean, you see that with, uh, you know, Steamboat Willie, which was not the first Mickey Mouse cartoon, by the way. It's the first Mickey Mouse cartoon that had a distributor. And it was obviously the first synchronized sound cartoon. Um, you know, but Plane Crazy actually came before Steamboat Willie. It just got distributed after the success of Steamboat Willie, and then they added sound after they, you know, figured out the whole synchronization process. Um, you know, we see it with, uh, you know, the multiplane camera and you know all of the advances in, you know, Snow White and the, the Seven Dwarfs. And then, you know, look at look at the 1950s. The emerging technology, of course, is television. Well, every single studio, every single producer in Hollywood wants nothing to do with television, that they are terrified of it. They are convinced that it's going to destroy their business and destroy their ability to tell stories. And Walt can't embrace it fast enough because (laughs) he knows it's going to enable him to connect with every American family in their living room every single night, He's, he was always
1: pushing, you know, the the latest and greatest way of bringing entertainment to people. Correct, he, like he he embraced everything, which I think is what makes him so special. Like you said, compared to really anybody else, everybody else was afraid he was willing to do it. So I got a, I got a little quick question. We're we're on a podcast right now, right? Those weren't around during, (laughs) what would, uh, you know, what, would Walt have had a podcast and what, like what would he think of this, you know, this whole thing, podcast, like bringing, yeah, this platform, people being able to just talk to each other
3: anywhere. Oh, I think he would think it was amazing. And um, this is what was fun about, um, or is fun about my history of Disneyland class because, you know, I've had students write about Tomorrowland in 1955. And then of course the vision, the version that we get in 1959 and the version again, that we get in 1967 and then another version in 1998. And we've needed a new version for, gosh, I don't know how many years now. Um, you know, by the time you build tomorrow, it seems like it's yesterday already. Right. So good luck with that. Um, the challenge with Tomorrowland in 1955, aside from the fact that you know they didn't have enough time or money, it was the last of the lands that they broke ground on. And at one point, Walt even said, "Hey, look, we haven't broken ground on Tomorrowland. We're running out of time. We're running out of money. We'll put a fence up and tell the public Tomorrowland will open well tomorrow." And then, sort of like the CDC during the pandemic, the next day he had a meeting, made a completely different decision. And said, um, yeah, we promised the public an, a, an entire park, so we'll do the best we can with Tomorrowland, and you know we'll fix it later. Well, later was 1959, and that's when we get the first of the e-ticket attractions, the Monorail, the Matterhorn, and the Submarine uh, Voyage. And if you go back and look, um, that's the second opening of Disneyland, so, what's really fascinating is compare the ABC broadcast from July 17th with 29 cameras, largest live broadcast to date. Um, I mean, it's kind of a mess. It's just, it's all over the place because live television, I mean, just television in general, is really in its infancy in 1955. Compare that to the broadcast of the second opening of Disneyland, which is really the reopening of Tomorrowland in June of 1959. I mean, it's a really polished production. Um, and, and so again, you know, you, you, you have that contrast in the technology of, of, of television, but then secondly, you know, my students picked up real fast on, okay, well, it's kind of cute that Tomorrowland was this vision of 1986. And the reason why they picked 1986 is that was the next year that Haley's Comet was going to come around. I mean, they had to pick some date, right? So that was as convenient as any. Um, and what's really scary is okay, so 1986 is 31 years into the future when the park opened in 1955. Now it's like 37 years into the past, right? So, um, you know, time moves like really, 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 really quick. So you better get up off your park base to start doing stuff. <laughs> realize, you know, the, the clock's ticking. Yeah. Um, but my my students have, have been really quick to say, you know, it's interesting that whether it was the 55 version, the 59 version, or even the 67 version, Walt and Disney were all in on... The, the vision of corporate America, the vision of the nuclear age and the vision of the space race. There was no vision for the way that we communicate in the future. And, and granted, like how could there have been? How could there have been? You know, I don't know.
2: How could you have predicted that?
3: Yeah. Yeah. So and, and I, I've gotten some really interesting papers on that over the years. Um, one saying, you know, hey, you know, there, and, and I guess to some degree we got that in Epcot when Epcot opened in 82. I mean, that's really what has transformed our world way more than like a plastic house in the future. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some of the other stuff that was on display. Right. Um, and then secondly, you know, there wasn't much of a vision for. You know, the, the the inclusion and the diversity and, you know, the social progress that, you know, fortunately we've seen. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and my comment, my commentary on that, which, again, is why I was able to teach the courses of U.S. history class, is the, the park is a mirror and a reflection of where we are as a country. So if you watch the opening day broadcast, it's very white, it's very um, middle to upper class um you know everybody is coming in right after church right. um two and a half perfect kids and uh, you know the only diversity the the only um uh you know minorities are either celebrities i.e Sammy Davis Jr or stereotypical cast members like Aunt Jemima you know and and that's it yeah, yeah. And, and, and and to put this into context this is July of 55. Rosa Parks hasn't even refused to give up her seat in Montgomery. That's not going to happen until December because that's where we are as a country in July of 1955. And I get emails probably once or twice a week complaining about where Disney is as a company today. But again, that's a reflection of where we are as a country right now. That's the mirror. That's the reflection. And I get it. But those people probably weren't equally upset in 1955. No. <laughs> yeah, that's true.
2: I, I think that's well said. You know, when I, you know, we when I think of, um, you know, when people reflect on Disney, either currently or even just in the past, you know, I see people kind of doing one or two things. There, sometimes people are very ashamed of Disney for that. They're very ashamed of Walt and they're very well that was Walt, you know. It's almost like they don't like they like the Disney now, but they don't like where Disney was in the past. And then the flip side is there's there's people that well, they they like the old Disney, but they don't know what this new Disney is. And what I think what you just did right there is there's to kind of build that bridge to say there's a way to, where we can we can be appreciative of both of both, of both the past and where we're going now.
3: Yeah. Well, and, it, and again, not to make these issues equivalent to attractions, because I think they're bigger than that. Sure, sure. But, um, you know, there are people like the second um, a, a, an old attraction gets removed, you know, people get really, really, really upset. Right. Um, but the park's not a museum. That's right. Yeah, you know, and you know, I I, I get, um, you know, you don't want to see, um, you know, something from your childhood of forty years ago to go away. Mm-hmm. But at this, when's the last time you when's the last time you you rode that? When's the last time you experienced that? Right? Right.
2: I mean, it was August for me, but that's okay. I mean, if that's this is coming from someone that loves what we're talking about. I love it, but you know what? I agree with you. And I, even as somebody that was like, you're right. That was a narrative talking about the narrative of my own childhood. That was that ride was a big portion, but I do understand fully. This isn't a museum. This is not a museum and, and things have to change. And, 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 you know, I'll just leave it at that. And so I think I love how you, you kind of balance or you live in the tension of the two, when you talk and about these yeah, and I, I think that's healthy. I think that's a healthy
3: way to. And think again, it. and that doesn't mean I think everything Disney is doing or does is great yeah. or perfect. Far from it. Yeah, um, us too. Us too. <laughs> yeah, um, but it, like when when Galaxy's Edge was an, and I've got major issues with Galaxy's Edge. We don't want to go down that route. <laughs> when it was announced, when it was announced, especially out here in California, I mean, people just lost their minds. You're right. Because they were destroying Walt's Park, and you know it doesn't belong in Disneyland, and you know yeah, if they want to do it in Florida and Hollywood Studios, that's fine. But you know what the heck are they thinking? And you know, and and you know, the railroad got rerouted, and we lost some of the Rivers of America, and we lost some of Tom Sawyer Island, and you know, blah 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 blah. Well, first of all, I had always seen Star Wars as um, sort of a Western in space, so tucking it behind Frontierland never bothered me a bit. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, yeah, that's good. Yep. I the, the second they reopened the railroad, you never heard another peep from those people. And the reason why is the railroad is so much better. It's so much better. Uh, like rerouting it as a result of Galaxy's Edge, and and the railroad at Disneyland has always been better than what you have at Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World anyway. But it took it up another three notches. It's just phenomenal as a result of it's, the rewrite. It's good.
2: I, yeah, it's good. We wrote it, on, like I said, on, in August.
3: And yeah, it was pretty cool. So, yeah. And so, again, you know, we have this tendency to want to just hold on to it and hold on to it and hold on to it. But again, and, and I write about this at the very start of the first book. The park is a living, breathing thing. Right. It's not a it's not static and it's not a museum. And it's in order to, you know, stay alive. It, you know, it, it's it's it, it's got to have new experiences. Right.
2: And well said. I think I'm going to get I'm going to get all confusion right here. I think when it comes to Disney, it's just like anything else in life. If you hold on to a butterfly too tightly, you'll crush it. If you hold on to it too loosely, it'll fly away. There you go. So that healthy, that healthy of I love Disney, but at some point you have to you have to hold it with a slightly open hand, you know, to where you're you're open to new experiences. You're open to change. You're open to all those things. Yeah.
3: Which is why Walt said and granted, this was in response to the press saying, hey, you've opened a park and half of it doesn't even work. Um, And his response was, as long as there's imagination left in the world, Disneyland will never be finished like people people know that quote they probably don't know the context of the quote and it was in response to the bad press following black sunday oh so i've heard that
2: quote i have like the quotes i have all these books of like the quote of walter it doesn't put those things in context so i didn't i didn't know it was that i i want to hear yeah. want to hear more about that story i don't know if if there's anything to add
3: oh no it was just um, The the press was just giving him tons of grief because, um, you know, they, they built the whole park in a year and it was obvious that, you know, it wasn't going to be finished the way that it needed to be. And the Imagineers, really the employees of WED, begged Walt to, you know, push it back another, you know, six weeks. But that just wasn't an option. Two reasons. One, he was under contract with ABC to give them a, a television program, but then secondly, um, if if he misses the summer tourist season and they open in September, then they they don't make it through the first year. So you know he knew that they had to open in in the summer season if if they were ever going to make it at all, and so it was better to open um, you know with things not quite done right then then to open late which to some degree is why when they celebrated the 50th anniversary back in 2005 any attraction that opened in 1955 Disney counts as an opening day attraction doesn't matter whether it was July August September October November anything that opened in 55 Opening day attraction. Okay.
2: See, and that, that ties in what you said earlier about the soft opening thing. So that – okay. That makes sense. All right. Th- thank you for connecting those dots. For- well,
1: it's actually a, <laughs> a, a good transition. So Jeff, we have hundreds of more questions. We're going to definitely have to have you on – I right know, right Not right now. We're oh, going to be here until about 3 a.m. That's okay, right? So, yeah. But we do like to, um, you know, we, we give the, our listeners a little bit of a heads up of who's coming on. And we mentioned that, you know, we get Dr. Disneyland's coming. And we have a couple of fan questions. We've got two, if you've got time. Mm-hmm. But um, sure. one of them goes to, you know, you mentioned a quote. And this one comes from the Ultimate Disney Family that follow us on Instagram. And they said, Walt's known for many inspirational quotes. What do you think is the one that is most important for the direction of the company today?
3: Ooh, what is the most important Disney- Who are these fans of ours? What the heck? <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah, pretty deep. Nope, jeez.
2: Um, I'm just kidding. I love you, whoever you are.
3: The one that immediately comes to mind, and I have several quote books that I'm constantly going to in moments just like these for my blog or whatever. It takes a team of artists, you know, um, Engineers, imagine, it, it takes a team to make all of this happen. And I, I feel for the the cast members, the rank and file cast members who are making an hourly wage but aren't necessarily making a living wage. And, and I think it would be in the company's best interest to take a serious and hard look at that. And, um, see if, if they can't, you know, they're, they're doing what they think is best for their stockholders, but they're forgetting that the, the cast members who are on the front lines at the end of the day are doing what's best for their, for their guests. Yeah. Right. We love the cast members on our Vegas. Cause like Tara said, yeah. they, they're the boots
1: on the ground. They're the ones that we interact with when we're there. They make Disney world and Disneyland, that special place. You don't get that when you go, I just brought 200 freshmen to six flags, great adventure in New Jersey. And it's nowhere like a Disney park. And you could tell like the people that work there, they're just working the people that the cast members in a Disney park. It's more than work to them. Like it means something to them.
3: It's a passion. It's, it's a love. And I mean, Walt Disney world is the largest single site employer in the United States. And, you know, at one point, you know, that economy in in Central Florida, you know, it was sustainable for, you know, the cast members and hourly wage workers. But, you know, the cost of living has skyrocketed so quickly, um, you know, that, you know, they're struggling. And and I don't know how much of, of any of this you guys read. But when Epic Universe opens in 2025, there's going to be some real pressure in terms of of wages. And and I think Disney would be wise to get ahead of that and make sure they keep their quality people at all levels, whether it's cast members, leads, Imagineers, executives, you name it. What an answer. Yeah.
1: (laughs) All right. Yeah, we've got one more from the Disney World Chronicle. They're saying uh, they're asking if you got the chance to ask Walt one question,
3: what would you ask him? Ooh, if I had a chance to ask Walt one question, what would I ask him? Do you regret taking up smoking when you were the when you were driving those ambulances at the end of World War One? And I and I know like he defended the smoking saying that everyone had to have a vice. And at one point his daughter, Diane gave him a pack of filtered cigarettes because he smoked, he smoked unfiltered cigarettes and that worried her tremendously. And he promised to, you know, he promised that he would, he would smoke them, but he broke the filters off before doing so. And he, and he said, Hey honey, I, I promised to smoke them. I didn't say how, um, <laughs> and you know, and and, and, the, and the only reason I would ask about that is I can't help but wonder what his life and our world would look like, and specifically Walt Disney World if he had another fifteen years. And and the same with Steve Jobs, like 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 just just and I and I and not in a reincarnation sense, but I think Steve Jobs and Walt are way more similar than people realize. It's just Steve was born later and grew up on the West Coast, whereas Walt was born at the, you know, start of the 20th century and, you know, had more of a Midwest flavor to him. But at the end of the day, they're very, very, very similar. Um, And, you know, what would our world have looked like if, you know, we had not lost either of them at, you know, such a young age? Steve, obviously, way younger than than Walt. Um, Very similar.
2: Very similar. You're right.
3: Yeah. And you know, Walt was given six months to two years to live when he was diagnosed with a lung cancer and he lasted five weeks. You know, and all of that has to do with, with Walt Disney World and, and specifically Epcot. You know, I would just love to have seen his involvement in that project for the first 15 years. Because they, they had not even broken ground when he died.
4: Hate when the fans have better questions than us, <laughs> those are great questions <laughs> and great
2: answers. Oh, my goodness! I'm like, maybe, maybe we just need to outsource all our questions from now on to <laughs> sure. yeah, those were. I was like, I should have asked those questions and very great answers. Oh, my goodness! Well, well, Jeff, we want to be very respectful of your time. Thank you so much. What, well, go ahead, Annie. Oh, yeah, we've
3: got it. We got it. We got to
2: talk about you. Let's
4: oh, yeah, about- we have one
3: more Sorry. question,
4: which was. Well, no, we just want to plug in what's coming up for you.
3: Yeah, so um, so I'm no longer in higher ed. I uh, finished that career after 22 years. I write and speak full time now, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, and I have a third book coming out this year, which is not the trilogy in the Wisdom of Walt series. Um, I, I, I do have a worldwide Wisdom of Walt that is on the back burner um, because of the, the, the coronavirus and not being able to get to the Asian parks. Um, but I know what that book's going to look like. I've got the chapter titles outlined and, you know, what have you. Um, but I, I have a weekly Wednesdays with Walt blog that um, comes out weekly and a publisher wants to put that into a 52 week collection and make that available to fans readers bookstores and what have you and so the idea behind that is we'll take the WED in Wednesdays and make it all caps like wed and then there's 52 Wednesdays in a year and wed was started in 1952 so there's a lot of um, you know symmetry there um, and so now I've got to figure out you know which um, of the 52 articles do I want to put in the first compilation. So, and, and for your listeners, you know, they can go to my website, the wisdom sign up for the blog now and not have to worry about buying the book when it comes out. Um, in a few you know, you'll, you'll get it in an email letter every single Wednesday and it's a hundred percent free and it's inspirational, motivational, you know, leadership tips, life tips, uh, you know, what have you. And
2: and it's great, by the way. I've i I subscribed a while oh, ago.
3: So I've it, yeah, it's it's,
2: it's let wonderful. me tell you,
4: after Bill Farmer, you were Jeff's like number two person that he was like, I cannot wait. When no, we for sure. when Barry well, was like, you know, yeah. we you know, here's X, Y, and Z are coming on, and he's like, I have done so much research on Jeffrey Barnes. <laughs> I, am I know. So I went excited. down the Jeffrey Barnes
2: <laughs> rabbit trail, and uh so I've been a fan for a while. So it's just wonderful. It's, well thank yeah, you it's wonderful to have you and I hope we have you back if no, that's I would, okay no if some, I would love to come
3: back and um, you know talk a little bit more about you know the second book and you know specifically the the leadership and life lessons that um, you know you can take from this content and apply um, you know every day and both your personal and professional life. Because at the end of the day, that's really what this is all about. It's it's great that we love Walt. It's great that we love Disney. It's great that we love the parks. But the takeaway is what can you take home that is going to make your life better, whether it is for you individually, whether it's with your family, whether it's at work. And you know, for me, you know, I wanted to help students. I wanted to bring the parks, uh, you know, home and, you know, feel like, you know, every day was a day at Disneyland, right? Um, And that's sort of what, you know, drives me. And and I think it's, you know, I think it's possible.
2: Yeah, yeah. So next time we, let's just talk about that, if that's okay. I would love just to have some time just because of that that I think that's what fascinates me the most about your books you know we, we could talk about Walt Disney all the time but it's really okay well then there's a big sign that I hold up that says so what you know so what and the so what is you know it's it's everything that you just said it's, it's about the philosophy and what can you what can you incorporate in your own life and and then you have such a rich of your own life we, we talked about this a little bit earlier how you know your own story. Going back to the your the the idea of story shapes life. Well, it's not just Walt's story, but it's your own story in the book. That that when I read Walt's story, okay, that shapes my own life. But just reading your story as well, and what you've been through, well, that's a whole other story that has shaped my own life within the books. And so, talking about this philosophy and and, and all the what ifs would be
3: just. Well, and perfect. the, the truth of it. the matter is, everybody's living a story. It's just, you know, are you living an interesting story? Are you choosing better stories? Um, You know, go back to uh, the pandemic. That was a shared global story. Um, And, you know, what you get out of that is really about, you know, your attitude. um, And, you know, are you going to panic? Are you going to pivot? Are you, you know, going to implode? Are you going to innovate? Are you going to retreat? Are you going to be resourceful? Um, You know, your story is really about, the decisions and the choices that you make each and every day.
2: Are you living your story consciously or are you just being a, letting the story happen to you or are you taking the reins of your own story? And that's kind of what I, you know, that's just some of the wisdom that I got from your book. So I, I am a fan. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So thank you for being here and
4: thank you for coming on. I have to appreciate that. I feel like I learned more about Roy than I knew. Which I don't know if Barry's kinda when he reached out, like kind of told you the reason for our the name Sharing the Magic, but it's for Roy statue is the oh. Sharing the Magic statue in Walt Disney World. Um so that was awesome for me. That <laughs> was kind of a full a full circle.
1: I think we need a couple more Roy statues after hearing like how much, you know, he he was the driving force kind of behind making sure Walt's vision for at least Disney world, right. Really came to fruition.
3: Yeah. I don't think Roy gets nearly enough credit. Um, And I, I read something a few months ago. Um, You know, we think of Walt and this mostly comes from uh, the Disneyland television show, which is not the wonderful world of Disney or wonderful world of color show that a lot of us remember from Sunday nights on NBC. Those are two different programs. Um, the Disneyland program was on ABC for five years, and then, um, they negotiated a new contract with NBC, which was the wonderful world of color. And the reason why NBC wanted it is because they were owned by RCA and RCA was making color televisions. So they wanted a show that would sell what color televisions, even though they wanted nothing to do with the program in the mid 1950s, because in order to get it, they had to buy into the amusement park and they thought it would fail anyway. Um, the affable Uncle Walt that a lot of us think of um, was really more Roy. That was Roy's everyday natural personality. And Walt, um, as I understand it, was, you know, could, could really be an SOB. And I mean in th- like you don't achieve what Walt achieved you know without having that edge. So, so yeah, um, and, and it, probably my favorite Roy story is he would come in every morning and the first thing he would ask, I, I'm going to say secretary cause they didn't call him admin assistants back then. Um, the first question he asked his secretary was a report on every single Disney employee who had used the health insurance the day before. And it wasn't because he wanted to know what the financial hit was. Roy wanted to know who needed help from the company because they had a health issue or health concern.
2: Empathy in business. Are you kidding me? That existed? Oh my goodness. I don't
3: know. And and (laughs) so again, like if you look at the Eisner error and I don't think Eisner gets nearly enough credit. Um, Eisner was great as long as he had his Roy and the second Frank Wells died in that helicopter crash on Easter Sunday of 1994 for all intents and purposes, the Eisner era was over. So, so imagine if Roy had died before Walt instead of the other way around, which is essentially what happened to Eisner.
2: I kind of like Eisner. I, because maybe, maybe he had that sort of like dreamy vision that I, I kind of, I associate oh. with Walt,
3: you know, no, I mean I've heard it said that Eisner would have a hundred crazy ideas a day, and Wells would follow up on one or two of them.
1: <laughs> well,
2: he had to sift through them. Which,
4: if that's not a Walton Roy relationship, I don't know what is.
2: <laughs> one of them's got to stick. You throw a lot of stuff at the wall. A couple of them got a stick. I you mean, know,
1: maybe that's the formula. <laughs> maybe that's what we got to be looking at for uh, you know, have that that two headed monster, right? Where you have the the that conflict, right? The best stories, like you said, Jeff, have good conflict, but you have to have both sides of that coin to really get what you
3: need done. Yeah, well, and that's the other thing. Um, and we're kind of getting into our second podcast here, I guess. I know. Yeah, we, 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 um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Walt, second from from being the great storyteller, Walt's second greatest gift was as an HR director. He hired people better than himself. And he wasn't afraid to put people together who didn't get along. And the best leaders do that.
2: Is that in one of your books? Because I feel if it's not, it should, be, you need a you need to have like a,
3: yeah i'll be sure to include it in a blog or you he's know say, yeah he's, he's so, up those mondays
4: involved this week <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll
3: have to use that
1: clip for the teaser for the next the next time we have you yeah, on. We well, i'm <laughs> a small
2: business owner and i'm like you know what maybe i'm doing things wrong maybe i need to get some people together that conflict and not be afraid of it i just you know my mind's kind of like whoa i've never thought of that oh i know so you're right jeff you're right this is a This is a whole other podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jeff, man, this has been so great. Thank you so much for being here, and I hope I hope you had a good time. We we certainly did. uh, Thank you for writing your books, and thank you for doing what you do. And thank you. And uh, yeah,
0: we had so much fun sharing the magic with Jeff Barnes. You can follow Jeff Barnes on his Instagram at Doctor Disneyland and check out his books, The Wisdom of Walt and Beyond the Wisdom of Walt. For more information about Jeff Barnes, visit thewisdomofwalt.com. We thank you for tuning in to another episode of Sharing the Magic. As always, please hit that follow button and stay up to date on the latest episodes and tell your friends to tune in to wherever they listen to podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Sharing the Magic Pod. Until next time, keep sharing the magic. We are not an affiliate of the Walt Disney Company, nor do we speak for the brand or the company. Any and all Disney audio clips, likeness, and characters are their property and theirs alone.